because I think, I think a lot of this business and a lot of every business and a lot of life is just all mindset based. And so, uh, so I went down that personal development path and have never looked back. So hello and welcome to pillars of wealth creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now let's get to it. Hey, our sponsor for the show today is Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota. And they were recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through their investment prospectus. Get your copy today. Simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. Look, there's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexter. with me today. I'm excited to have Tim Bratz. Tim, how are you doing today? Todd, excited to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us and uh, excited to get to it. So Tim is the CEO and founder of Legacy Wealth Holdings, a real estate investment company that acquires and transforms distressed commercial and apartment buildings into high performance investment assets. And Tim began his real estate career in 2007, brokering commercial leases in New York City real estate market. Um, and now Tim currently owns, uh, I think you said about 3,500, uh, rentals across six or seven States. I believe you mentioned, I think we're up to, up to eight or nine States now, eight or nine yeah. States, man. I lost count after yeah. you, you mentioned, <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, you got a lot more uh, on your background and I, but I'm going to let you explain that. So, so you can talk about what you think is important for our listeners to know. So why don't you do that? Give our listeners a little bit more about your background and then about what you're doing today. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And thank you again for having me. And thanks for all the value that, that you put out there. You're making a big impact on a lot of people's lives. So, um, I mean, I mean, high level on me, I think, you know, the most uh, uh, recurring question that I get is how'd you get started in real estate? And then how'd you get started in apartment buildings? Uh, right now, I focus exclusively on buying apartment buildings, typically 100 plus units in, you know, uh, landlord friendly states, kind of like the Southeast, the South, the Midwest. Um, and we, uh, we, we buy value add type stuff. So just like um, I come from the residential world and, um, you know, I, I always look, look for the worst house in the best block, right? And that's how you create value there. And I do the exact same thing with apartments. So I look for the, the, most beat up building in the best neighborhood, like an A or B class kind of workforce type housing. And so that's all I focus on now. But again, I come from residential and, you know, when, when the market was going crazy back in 03 to 07, I was going through college and um, people said, if you want to make money, get involved in real estate. And that's what motivated me back then. And so uh, my brother was living out in New York city, he said, Hey man, come and live with me after school. And I went and moved in with him. And I thought you got involved in real estate by becoming a real estate agent. And so I go get my license and I go and work, I, I park it with a, a commercial real estate firm and they would brokered a lot of leases, a lot of retail leases, a lot of office leases. And I, I just represented either landlords who were trying to market some vacant space, or I'd represent some business owner that was trying to open up a location or a second location or a 10th location. And I, um, 
it took me about seven, nah, probably like eight or nine months to close my first deal. And it was a small 400 square foot space in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. And uh, the real estate there is just insane. And this is 08, um, 07, 08 that, that I was doing this. And uh, we took this 400 square foot space and we leased it for $10,000 a month with a 4% annual increase and on a 12 year lease term. And I'm thinking, what the heck? Like, I'm on the wrong side of the coin. I need to be owning real estate, not brokering it, wow. right? And so I uh, couldn't afford anything. And I like New York, uh, but for me, it's just a better place to like visit. I wanted more lifestyle type um, feeling. And so I, I heard good things about Charleston, South Carolina. Didn't know anybody there. Just moved down to Charleston and um, uh, in, in summer of 2008 and decided I want to get involved in, in real estate as an investor. And so I bought all the courses and you know attended some seminars and just, was, was reading on online and um, just realized that I wasn't going to learn how to swim by reading about swimming in a book. I needed to actually jump in the water and actually do it, you know, and that's what I need to do. I need to go buy a property. And I found uh, the cheapest house on the MLS and uh, I didn't have any money. So I'm a, I'm a punk 23 year old kid, right? Nobody's going to give me money. Never done a deal before. And then the, the housing market crashed, like the worst market ever. Like nobody's going to give me any money. So I, I, I think a lot of people tell themselves like, oh, I don't have money, so I can't go invest in real estate. And then it just shuts off their brain. And when I think when you make a statement like that, it doesn't get the creative juices flowing in your brain. If you ask yourself a question, it automatically leads to an answer or another question. So I asked myself, I said, hey, how can I get the money if I don't have the experience, if it's the worst real estate market and, and uh, I'm a young kid and I've never done this before. And um, I said, hey, it might not come from friends and family. I'm not gonna be able to get it from some private money lender but I have this credit card and I had this credit card worth with about $3,000 on the limit. And I heard you can call them up and actually increase your limit. So I called up my credit card company. I said, Hey, I'm about to make a big purchase. Will you increase my limit? And they, um, I asked for a hundred thousand dollars. They laughed at me, but they gave me, but they gave me 15, you know? So that's one of those, that's another lesson. Like <laughs> aim high, aim, and, high. Uh, aim high, miss high, right? <laughs> You're still okay. And so that's what I ended up doing. I, I uh, got some balance transfer checks. I wrote myself a check for 15 grand and went and renovated this house personally. And I YouTube, you know, I don't know how to do it. So I just YouTube how to change out carpet. I YouTube how to change out uh, light fixtures. I YouTube, wow. like, I'm reading the directions on this stuff. I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but uh, that's how I learned. And so um, I physically did all the work. And then I said, how do you sell a house? And I Google searched that. And it's like, hold an open house. So I was like, all right. So I put out some signs. I passed out some flyers. And one of the neighbors came in and, and um, bought the house for $33,000. So I was all in for around 19, maybe 20. So I made about 13, $14,000 on my first deal. And, you know, spent about 120 days. And um, I was like, I don't even know what the heck I'm doing. I'm making money doing this. Like, let's go do it again. So do it again, do it again. Got into wholesaling. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of us get into real estate cause we want to be the landlord, right? We want to be, have yeah. residual income. We want passive income. We want to build that long-term wealth, but then we get stuck in this, like this transactional hamster wheel of trading our time for money and going out and doing a deal and getting paid and then having to do it again and again and again. And it's, um, thinking that we have to stockpile our own cash. And that's kind of where my, where my mind was at least. And so. I went out and got into wholesaling and I started flipping houses again, or I was doing more, more house flips. And eventually what happened though, is I met people who had money who were either buying properties from me or saw what I was doing and uh, wanted to get involved, but maybe they didn't have the, the 
bandwidth, like to take on deals or that they were already had um, at max capacity on the rehabs they were doing, but they still had money or they had money and they just didn't know what to do in real estate. They made money from some other business and they ended up saying, Hey, why don't you, you do the work? I'll bring the money and let's figure out a split somehow. And that's how I got my first private money lenders. And um, I bought a package of five houses with a hundred thousand dollars. Like again, this is 2010 ish, whatever. Uh, like when the market was at, at its bottom and I found some houses in the hood and I bought five houses for a hundred thousand dollars and fixed them all up, refinanced the guy out within 12 months and gave him all of his money back. A, a massive return. I think he made 25, 30% on his money inside 12 months. And um, but then I got to keep the properties. So I'm all into these things for about $130,000 after I paid him off. And, um, they were cash flowing like crazy. They were renting for 700 bucks a month and there were five of them. So that's $3,500 a month for all in for a hundred thousand dollars. And so I ended up building up a portfolio of about 10 houses. I was essentially financially free. I wasn't rich, but after all operating expenses and debt service and everything, I had about three grand of uh, passive income coming in. My, my lifestyle was, I don't know, 1500 to $2,000 a month. And so um, I was financially free, right? So like I'm feeling good. And uh, then I, I shiny, shiny object syndrome, right? You go and chase some other industry. And I got out of real estate and, and drank the juice so much that I ended up selling my real estate and uh, thinking this other business would take off. And it just didn't. And uh, two and a half years later, I was just completely broke, right? I had 25 grand in credit card debt. I was paying for gas with coins out of the cup holder of my car. I'd travel for business and sleep in the back seat of my car and go and, you know, shave in the, the, the hotel parking or the, I'm sorry, the hotel uh, uh, lobby bathroom, you know, in the morning and just, it was, it was bad. like, I was intermittent fasting before it was cool to intermittent fast, you know, like, <laughs> just not eating all day, like, like getting a sandwich for lunch, a foot long sub, eating half for lunch, half for dinner. And that was it. And so Man, that was my that was my life in, in summer of 2012, and I thought I got to get out of this. What do I know? The only thing that like I, it worked for me was real estate. So let, let me go back to real estate, and, and I left that business. And a couple guys who I met through that business uh, reached out to me and said, "Hey, we, you know, we got some cash. We want to invest in real estate. And, you know, can we go play some Monopoly together?" And uh, I, I had kind of an exclusive relationship with those guys. Went out. Uh, turned a little over a million bucks into about $4 million worth of property over the course of three years. And that partnership ended up fizzling out and we ended up liquidating everything in 2015, 2016. And I've uh, just been doing my own thing ever since. And so, um, you know, been, man, punched in the face, knocked down everything you could possibly imagine, had buildings burned down, had tenants, you know, burn me, had contractors burn me, been you know, sued for stupid stuff that I didn't even do anything wrong and had to settle and like all sorts of different things. Um, and so I've, I've run the gamut. I've tried vacation rentals, wholesaling, turnkey real estate, high-end flips, low-end flips, single-family rentals, um, office buildings, um, uh, vacant land, uh, private lending, property management division. Like I've done it all. And um, I sat back about two, almost three years ago now, and just looked at my entire portfolio of like, where was I building my wealth and where was I spending my time? And 90% of it came from apartments and it was only 10% of my time. And I thought, get rid of everything else, focus. And what you focus on expands. It took me from a couple hundred units to, you know, several thousand units in a span of about three years. So let's talk about that, uh, 
and that expansion then uh well first before we get to that i got a question I, I, you have these this business that didn't succeed right and uh but out of that you said you've got several people that want to give you money to work that money mm -hmm. well, explain that to me because you would think if they watched a business not succeed you had to close the doors on that um they would be hesitant to just giving you money so how are you able to build that trust with them? Yeah. So it, it was a, it was a different kind of, it was like a network marketing kind of business. Gotcha. And so it, the failure rate in that is pretty significant. Yep. And I was actually in top of 1% of producers. It just didn't make any money. Right. Yep. Um, it just, it was a type of network marketing company that you got paid for recruiting people. And I didn't like going out and like recruiting people that I knew wouldn't do the business and essentially take 500 bucks of their money. Right. And I was just like, this doesn't sit well with me. Um, I wasn't making a lot of money. I was spending a lot of time and uh, spending a lot of money going to all these events and everything. And I was totally broke with 30,000 miles a year on my car, going to all these home meetings and stuff. And um, philosophically, it made a lot of sense. It just, it, it wasn't a good business for me to be in. I had other skill sets, yeah. uh, but I met some phenomenal people. I went through some amazing personal development, learned how to public speak out of it, all this different stuff. And it's really set me up for a lot of good things moving forward. So, you know, did, did it, did I learn a lot? I learned a ton. Um, do I wish I didn't do it? No, not necessarily. Cause I, I learned so much and it opened up a lot of other doors and it got to me to where I am today. Right. Maybe I wish I didn't spend two and a half years of my life on it, but, um, it was good. It was good while I was doing it until it was time to just move on. So what happened was two of the senior vice presidents, you know, like the guys at the top of the pyramid kind of a thing. We're making a lot of money. They were making a million bucks plus per year and they had a bunch of cash saved up and they wanted to, they got into that. So that way they could have cash to go and invest in real estate. And I was in the top 1% of everybody on their team. And I had, I, I, I had a good relationship with them. And when they heard that I was leaving, they didn't really get mad at me. They just said, Hey, how about we find another way to make money together? And how about we invest with you? And so that's what we ended up moving forward on. Got it. Yeah. And actually network marketing. I mean, whether it's profitable or not, that's for another conversation. But um, the the training that you get is with most network marketing companies is actually really good. Uh, uh, they I, I did to, a little bit of, of yeah. network marketing and, and it was excellent training. A lot of mindset training, a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of business training. I thought it was excellent. It really grew me from a mindset, and personal development, and entrepreneurial outlook. Yeah. Uh, perspective. Uh, I gained a lot of good skills on, again, public speaking and, and um, like sales and marketing and, and strategy and, and again, all that mindset stuff. And, um, you know, so, some of these companies, they don't make a lot of money, so they have to like provide value in another way. And that's really through the education, the personal development yeah. type stuff. And that's what keeps people around. And that's really what hooked me because I got hooked on personal development and I'm a big believer in mindset and um, being a, a, you know, a Jedi mind trick ninja kind of thing. Right. And, and just focusing on that kind of stuff. Um, because I think, I think a lot of this business and a lot of every business and a lot of life is just all mindset based. And so, uh, I went down that personal development path and it never looked back. So I'm very appreciative in that regard. Well, and I got you into intermittent fasting, which is great as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trendsetter. <laughs> yeah. 
So let's talk about then the business and then and, and where you're heading, where you're, where you've headed now. You're into the multifamily. You've kind of phased out a lot of these other things, the flipping, the wholesaling, the, all this other stuff. It sounds like you're maybe, I don't know if, are you doing any of it or is it completely? Gone? We come across a lot of deals that don't meet our buying criteria. They're just either too small or in an area where we don't really have um, a team set up or anything like that. And so I have a, like a pretty heavy social media following and there's a lot of people who want to learn about buying apartment buildings and yeah. uh, I do a little bit of the education stuff. So I have like this internal buyers network that I just kind of refer out deals and, yeah. um, and you know, if they buy it great, they'll kick me a point or two of just kind of as a thank you. Um, but other than that, like we don't formally go out and do anything other than just buying and holding apartment buildings yeah. and we buy and hold. We, we're not buying flip. We're not buying and sell. We're not planning an exit in the next, three to five years, we're planning on buying, renovating, refinancing. That pays back our investors their money, takes their money off the table, and then we're planning on holding long-term. The way that wealth is built is by buying assets and getting other people to pay for it, letting it appreciate, letting principal get paid down, and over the course of time, you build up so much equity. That is how wealth is built. So take me through that strategy because the, the traditional strategy is, right, we're going to buy it, we're going to renovate it, we're going to add our value, sell it in five to, five to three, three to seven years. Uh, our investors get their money back and then we rinse and repeat. But you're different. You're not doing that. And off camera, you were telling us also about or telling me about, you know, kind of how you're getting these deals. So let's first let's dive into that strategy and why how it works because you've got to be able to pay your investors back yeah i mean i mean it, at the end of the day um if you're flipping apartment buildings you don't you're not building wealth you just have a high right. paying job right i mean i i, I got into this to build wealth and, and when i i've I studied wealth my entire life or at least my entire adult life and um what i've realized is that the ultra high net worth people and and the the, the wealthiest one percent of people uh, in the world, they focus on net worth, not necessarily on what is my income this year, right? And so if you're flipping buildings, you might have a big income, but you're not building wealth. And so I focus heavily on, on my net worth. And uh, that's from buying and holding property and letting time be on your side and letting, you know, finding assets that other people are willing to pay for. You create enough value that they're willing to pay you for that asset, a tenant, i.e., you know, safe, clean, functional housing. Tenant pays you covers all your operating expenses, covers all your debt service and puts cash flow in your pocket. Then eventually over time, 20 years from now, you own it free and clear and you have monster cash flow, monster amounts of equity in the deal. That's how you build real wealth. And so that's always been my, my long-term uh, play. I see a lot of people who are like, well, what should I do? How should I jump in? How should I, you know, should I tiptoe? I have this other business. And it's like, like life is short. Right. I'm 34, but I, I talk to people who are uh, older than me, who are wiser than me, who've been around the block a few more times than me. And they're like, listen, like, like, do not waste your time on stuff that you don't want to do. Right. And so for me, the transactional stuff might, you know, get exciting because I make a big pop here or there. But at the end of the day, if it just doesn't meet my long term goal, why the heck am I spending any time on it? Like, I'm, right. I just eliminate it. And what you'll find is, like you, you grow so much more. Um, again, what you focus on expands. And if you just focus on that, it's amazing how the universe kind of just responds and brings you other opportunities. When you draw a line in the sand and say, this is all that I'm doing. That's all that then 
uh, ends up appearing in front of you. And so, um, uh, you know, my model is just, it's, it's comes from the residential realm though. I never, I it never made sense to me to go buy a building and pay $10 million for a $10 million building and then hope and speculate that it appreciates over time over the next five years. Um, I, I got started in real estate when the market was falling apart and all these people were, uh, who were worth tens of millions of dollars on paper then ended up going bankrupt. I'm like, how the heck is that possible? Well, they bought at a retail price today. They hope tomorrow it would go up in value. And when it didn't, they, they didn't have the cash flow. So a couple lessons there. One, don't pay retail. Always buy at a wholesale price. Two, never speculate on appreciation. Create appreciation by value add and sweat equity. Number three, uh, do not buy anything that's not performing or, or doesn't have some sort of cash flow play to it. If you have enough cash flow, you can ride out any sort of storm. So even it like it, cash flow is almost like the lowest common denominator of can you do a deal or not? If you can let it cash flow, then guess what? You're going to be able to sell it, and make a big chunk of change. If it cash flows, you're going to be able to um, refinance it and pull some money off the table. Yeah. You can have multiple creative exit strategies on this property if it at least cash flows. And worst case scenario, if it at least cash flows and the whole market crumbles, you can at least ride out the storm, let the tenants continue to pay down principal. Eventually, the property will appreciate, right? And at least you can cover all your operating expenses. You can cover your mortgage payment and put some cash in your pocket. And so that's, that's been the cornerstone of my investing philosophy is pay wholesale, only buy for um, uh, cash flow and create appreciation, never speculate on it. And so um, that's, that's what my model is. So I buy an apartment building that's worth 10 million bucks. I need to be all into it for 65% of that after repair value. So I need to be all in for six and a half million dollars. If it costs me a million bucks to renovate it, my maximum allowable offer to buy that would be five and a half million bucks. You know, I just back into the numbers. And what that allows me to do is create so much appreciation in a pretty short period of time, six to 18 months usually. And then I can turn around and refinance somewhere between 12 to 24 months at 70% LTV. If I'm all in at 65% of the, of the stabilized value, and I get a 70% loan, that allows me to take a new loan off the table, pay off the acquisition or bridge financing, pay back all my investors for their down payment money that I use. And maybe even there's some refi proceeds that I can actually put in my pocket and carve up amongst the different partners. And, and then we, we put long-term fixed interest rate, non-recourse debt in place and we hang on to it. And then we just pay down principal and let it appreciate. And when you're saying the, the after repair value, that's not today's value. That's the value you're going to create with increasing the, the NOI and all that kind of stuff, right? Correct. Yeah. Hey, let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, Pine Financial Group. Look, you work hard for your money. Is your money working hard for you? Because of inflation, money sitting idle erodes your wealth. Many investors understand that real estate is a great investment, but may not want the effort or the risk that comes with owning their own property. They want to sit back and have payments, hit their bank account each and every month. Stop eroding your wealth and start building it by asking your money to work for you. You should be earning profits while you sleep in investment backed by real estate. Pine Financial Group, the leader in hard money lending in Colorado and Minnesota, was recently approved to offer their investment publicly. This investment offers only for investors in Colorado and Minnesota and is only made through the investment prospectus. 
get your copy today, simply visit www.pineinvestments.com and click to get started. There's a reason why some of the wealthiest people in history invest in loans backed by real estate. Learn more about the risks and returns at www.pineinvestments.com. It's www.pineinvestments.com. So, so in that refinance event, let's call it 24 months down the road, that refinance event that happens, are you then keeping your investors into the deal? Are you changing the equity splits? How do you treat that with your investors? <laughs> Yeah, my, mine's a little bit different than traditional syndication. I, first of all, I never knew about traditional syndication. I never yeah. knew, um, I never been to a course, never read a book on it. I, I didn't even know. And um, I, don't, I don't really like traditional syndication in the world of like, uh, or, or from the standpoint of it doesn't, it's not congruent, the vision of the goals of the investor and the operator, of the passive lender and the operator. Because the operator is getting all these fees and asset management fees and acquisition fees and capital events fees and uh, I don't know, fund management fees, whatever the fees are. They're taking all these fees regardless of the property's performance. And the investors are only getting paid if the property performs, right? So it makes sense if you're going to buy something stabilized that's already cash flowing. You can take your fees and the investors making their money. And now it makes sense. If you're doing a value add play, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't make a lot of sense, at least not in my eyes. And um, and the other issue is if you're doing a value add play, all the work falls on the operator and it's not, it's not fair to the operator that they're doing all the work, creating all the value and only getting 25% ownership in this, in this property long-term. Right? So, uh, I never liked that. And the other thing is if you're buying something stabilized, why would the seller be motivated? If it's already renovated, if it's already in good shape, if it's already cash flowing, they're not, they're going to sell you that building for 10 million bucks. If it's worth 10 million bucks, they're not going to take a discount on it. So th that's a couple of the reasons why traditional syndication doesn't sit well with me and my model. What I look for is distressed assets, motivated sellers, just like I did in residential. And then we go in and we create appreciation, but we can turn around and do it in, let's say 12 to 24 months. Let's say 18 months on average is our typical turnaround time to renovate it, uh, restabilize it and then refinance it. So it allows us to then pay back our investors, but I, I pay them a pref regardless of the property's performance. So they make a certain percentage on their money, whether it's performing or not. And I just build that into the cost of the deal. If it's not performing, it doesn't cover the, the cash flow. So I just create an interest reserve. So then they're seeing money. They feel good about it. They have a predictable return on their investment, which is a big deal for investors. And then two, there's more velocity on their money. So when they, when I cash them out, I still, I, I, I could probably just pay them 10, 12% and give them all their money back and they'd be fine. But I give them equity. I, they, they make on average about 20% ownership that, that they maintain in perpetuity in the project, even after the, the, um, the whole payback of investors. Of, yes. The yeah. chunk of investors yeah. keeps, let's say 20, 25% ownership, um, in that deal forever. So that leaves enough room for me for sponsoring the loan for some, for me, for raising the money for a local joint venture partner who actually found the deal and is overseeing the project management going to be boots on the ground for the next 15 years of this project. They need to be compensated. Like the investor's money was only involved for 18 months, right? This person's going to work for the next 10 years, maybe two decades. And, um, they need to be compensated fairly and equitably from that. And so 
it's, it's, it actually makes more sense for everybody involved uh, because the investors, hey, uh, I'm only getting 25%. I can get 75% of this deal over here. Well, your money also has to be involved in for uh, five years. I can get you in three deals over here and you can have 25, 25, 25. You have the same 75%. But then guess what? We're holding these three deals and you have all your money off the table in, in deal, it's traditional syndication. You got to sell that in order to get your money back. You're not building real wealth. And you're paying taxes. And you're paying taxes, right? And so it just, it makes, and I don't, I don't fee these deals either. Like I, I uh, for four years, man, I never took an acquisition fee. I just started taking acquisition fees on about, Eh, probably less than half of our deals we take a small acquisition fee on just because our overhead is pretty significant now. We've got to make sure we cover that. It's been stressful with a lot more money going out over the first few years than coming in, but now it's coming in. We're refinancing all this stuff, but we don't want to ever be in that position again. So now we take some acquisition fees. Uh, they're small and it's not on every single deal. And uh, But what that does is it, it means we're in the same boat, rowing in the same direction with the investors, meaning yeah. I get paid from the refi proceeds and the cash flow once the property refinances. I, otherwise I don't see any money. So I'm fully incentivized to get this thing renovated, rented and refinanced and the investor their money back because that's also when I get paid. So now interests are aligned and we can keep on rocking and rolling. And then guess what? They see me as a long-term partner because I'm giving them equity in a deal that, um, that we're going to own and for the next 10, 15, 20 years together. So they're like, Tim's my guy. Let me keep on rolling forward with Tim. So I buy apartments, 100 plus unit deals. I'm always looking for deals, but they're hard to find. How are you finding deals that you can get 65%? Well, it's going to be less than that, right? Because you're going to put some, some money into it, but 65% uh, of future value. How are you finding those deals? What are you doing that's different than maybe everybody else? I'm sorting through a lot of crap in order <laughs> to find a couple of deals. We look at 400 deals a month in order to buy two. Are you That'd looking at uh, on market, like deals listed by brokers or no. are you guys doing your own no. marketing? The, the thing with brokers is they know who the top 10 buyers in town are. They want to earn hundred percent of the commission. They don't want to co-broke. So they're not taking their listings and putting them on, on the market. They're picking up the phone and calling the top 10 broker or top 10 buyers in town to try to sell them that deal. And that way they can earn the full commission themselves. So if you see a deal that hits the market through a broker, it's because the top 10 buyers in town all said no to it. And it's a bad deal, right? So they're going to send you a whole bunch of garbage uh, projects that are not good um, to invest in just to see one, are you dumb enough to go out and buy that? Right. Um, yeah. And, and two, are you a serious person where you can see that it's not a good deal? And so um, we, I mean, I, again, come from the residential realm. I found off-market, direct-to-seller deals, and that's exactly what we do with apartments. And we do all the same stuff, man. Outbound phone calls, outbound driving for dollars, dialing for dollars, um, networking like crazy, going to real estate investors association meetings, going to landlord association meetings. Uh, we hang out at eviction court, meet all the property managers and, and attorneys and landlords who are angry about their tenants not paying. We, we wanna go and buy those properties from them. We um, uh, uh, direct mail. We send out mail piece, like all the same stuff that we did on the residential side. We just do with apartments. You can buy lists, you can text message blast, you can email blast, you can, uh, ringless voicemails, all that kind of stuff. Like whatever you want to do. Um, RVMs are getting some heat right now. So, uh, not, not usually the best, uh, platform, but 
Text messaging works amazing. Direct mail still works well. Um, and uh, yeah, just, I mean, just building the relationships. The, the key thing to understand is this is not a get rich quick. This is a get wealthy slow. And so what you want to do is build relationships and it's all about timing. They might not be selling today. But they might sell in six months. They might sell in six years. They might sell in 60 years. Like if you're in this to build real wealth, long-term wealth, then you're not worried about what's happening today. You're worried about building a relationship so that you're the first person they think about when they are ready to sell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what you're describing there is a, is a lot of work. Um, finding apartment owners is much harder than finding the owner of a single family house because most of them have it in an LLC. And so you got to do some, some more legwork. But it it sounds like it's been profitable for you. You've obviously accumulated 3,500 or so units and have all the units been through your own method or have they been through the broker relationships or just all through guy well, for dollars? In some markets, I am one of the top 10 buyers. Like in Georgia, I'm probably one of the top three or I don't know, maybe one of the biggest multifamily buyers in all of Georgia. Um, I mean, we're, we're renovating 2000 units there right now. We're putting 2000 bathrooms and 2 million square feet of flooring and, you know, 10 million square feet of paint and all this stuff. So we have those broker relationships and we've moved on a lot of deals that a lot of other people couldn't qualify for because my balance sheet's big enough and we have the experience. So a lot of other people who might've wanted to, to buy those buildings couldn't. And a lot of the hedge funds and REITs, it was too messed up for, and they, they just weren't interested. And so uh, they want something that's just totally turnkey. And yep. um, so I've been able to kind of create a niche, especially in Georgia and South Carolina and, and a little bit in, in Ohio as well, where, um, where I do have the broker relationships and we do see a lot of those deals early on. That wasn't always the case. Like we still do uh, on a regular basis. We still go through um, all the, all the off market channels to go and find off market deals and um, that's that's majority of how we get most of our deals. Over 50% of them come from off market and probably, I don't know, 30% of them come from on market. Awesome. Well, let's shift a little bit and talk about uh, some mistakes you've made along the way. What's one mistake <laughs> that you can pick up uh, and tell our listeners that, that you've made and how have you learned from it? Oh, man. Um, I've had <laughs> apartment buildings burned down where I had the wrong insurance in place. I've had... Uh, you know, due diligence <clears throat> and the seller goes, Oh yeah, no, I mean this, this unit right here, it's the only one you need to walk through because it's very indicative of what all the other properties, all the other units look like. Oh, I trust you, Mr. Seller, right? Like buyers are liars and sellers are worse. And so um, I, I would say one of the big ones would be due diligence and you've got to do full due diligence. Do not get lazy in due diligence. There's financial due diligence and there's physical due diligence and you got to go through every single lease yeah. and cross reference it with the rent roll and make sure that the rental amount is what it says in the lease. Make sure that the, the security deposit that's being conveyed is exactly what it says in the lease, because mm -hmm. that lease is the legal document that the seller or that the uh, tenant's going to hold you to and the court's going to hold you to when you own that property. And so, Oh, well, you know, I, I, they didn't pay rent in October and I just, I took their de deposit and put it towards rent. So we're not going to convey that one. Do you have anything in writing from the, from the tenant? No. All right. Then I need that deposit. Like, like, until you get something in writing where they sign off that they don't, they're not entitled to any deposit anymore. Like, no, that, that's transfers with the property. So like, that's a big deal. Um, I, I'll give you another one. I, I bought a, the only building I ever lost money on. And, um, and here's the thing about apartments. If you buy it and it cash flows, eventually you'll break even again. 
right, on the valuation, even if you overpay for it, if you can hold on to it long enough, eventually it'll like, you'll pay down enough principal, it'll appreciate enough in value, so you can still screw these things up pretty bad if you have time on your side. Um, on this one, I bought a 44 unit apartment building from a guy that I knew, I had a relationship with him for a couple of years, um, as far as like selling, sending him deals and, and you know, talking with him and kind of helping him out with some different contractors and stuff in Cleveland. And he, there's got this small building and he's like, I, oh, man, I want to dump this one and focus on some stuff in Florida or wherever. And so, uh, so he's like, yeah, it's 80% occupied. I'll sell or finance it or you know, offer you some good terms or whatever. So I was like, oh, okay. And, um, although it was seller finance and or I'm sorry, although it was uh, 80% occupied, I'm thinking it's 80% economically occupied and yeah. 80% of tenants are paying rent. Doesn't mean that's not the case. It was only 25% economically occupied. And so on this 44 unit building that we thought we'd have to flip, you know, run, turn nine units and then turn it around. I could probably make $300,000 on it. We had to go and renovate an extra 25 apartments that were all sorts of messed up, go through eviction, pay attorney's fees, pay uh, court fees, not collecting in rent, still paying all the operating expenses, losing money. And I ended up just stroking, like we, we turned the whole building and we had to in order to then be able to sell it for what we were into it for. And, um, and it was just such a headache and it's such a, a morale um, deflator to my team that I was like, yeah, we could hang on to it and probably break even in a couple of years and then sell it. Or I can just stroke a check right now and lose like 40 grand and just call it a day because it's going to open us up to go and do better deals and more deals. And um, The opportunity cost that it was taking away was worth far more than the $40,000 that for me to strike the check, stroke the check. So I just wrote a check, got rid of the apartment building. Um, and that's a due diligence piece. You know, I, I, I looked at the rent roll and I looked at leases, but I did not verify collections. That's a big issue. Uh, another one that's bit us multiple times. We finally learned our lesson a couple of years ago was, um, was the plumbing and, oh man, just the plumbing always is torn up. It's always a disaster. There's always backups. And that we're like, these plumbing bills are tens of thousands of dollars yeah. after we buy these buildings. And I'm like, how do we stop doing this? Well, we just have to scope the lines, uh, before we buy it during due diligence that costs thousands of dollars. It costs us two, three, four grand, every single property, um, and, and more on some of the bigger ones. And so. Uh, we're just like, dude, we got to bite the bullet. It's part of the it's cost of doing business because it's going it. to save us. And I'll, I'll give you an example. We just did this. <coughs> I bought a hundred units in Louisiana a couple of weeks ago and um, scoped the plumbing lines cost us like $4,000 to do it. And um, found out they're absolutely wrecked. We got a $72,000 price reduction because of it. So absolutely paid for itself. And we would have lost $72,000 yep. um, on that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, especially these older properties, I mean, it, and they don't even have to be that old. I mean, they can be, you know, 20 years old mm-hmm. and they can have some issues. So even all when, the way to the street. Yeah. Yeah. When you're, even when you're looking at, you know, 1990 built property, I would be scoping the 1990 built property uh, all the way to the street, like you just said, and making sure those lines are, are good. And when you're buying, Older properties, 1960s, 1970s, I would just assume all that galvanized, all that cast needs to be replaced. Yep. And so you've got a budget for that entire bill uh, and it's going to be on you. So if you can't, you can't make the numbers work with replacing the plumbing on those. Exactly. Not even worth it. I was just going to take, you said, took the words right out. Like people try to make the numbers work and the easiest one for them to flex on is the construction budget. 
And that, that's, not, that's not a variable cost. That is a fixed cost of how much money needs to go into the property. Yeah. You can't scale that back, right? No, the only variable cost is the purchase price of it. So you have to go in and buy it at a low enough basis to make the numbers work the, the, the way that you need them to work. You can't like stabilize rents or what they are. That's what the market you know, will, will, will bear. And so that number is not going to change that much. Um, the operating expenses not going to change that much. So the value, the stabilized value of the building isn't going to change that much. So now what about, what about buying the property? So like the holding costs, yeah, you can balance that all out, all out but that's going to be a fixed cost. The renovation, excuse me, is going to be the fixed cost. The only number that you can actually uh, manipulate and, and play with and change in order to get a better deal is the actual purchase price. Yep. It's the only way. And if you cannot uh, get the seller to budge on the purchase price, this is not an emotional business. It is a hundred percent numbers based. And I promise you as much as my net worth has grown and as much as anybody's net worth can grow by buying a whole bunch of apartment buildings, one bad deal will completely wipe you out. Yeah. Yeah. hundred um, <clears> percent. <throat> Yeah, I mean, a lot of lot of good stuff, a lot of golden nuggets in here. What are you doing to on the business side, on the on the scaling side, to help kind of make your business continue to grow and to scale? And what what are you doing in that that sense of the business? Um, like grow my team? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So so one of the things I did, like I built up a pretty big management company in Cleveland on the, when I was doing residential flips and stuff, and I hated having that much overhead. And so, um, you know, you realize that like the, the number one reason businesses go out of business is because of lack of cash flow, which comes from having too much overhead. Yeah. And that typically comes from having too much payroll. And so a couple of years ago, I was like, man, I, I have ambitions. I want to grow a big portfolio. How do I do this without actually, uh, one, I'm limited on my own time, right? Um, and so, so I can only be in one place at one time. I could build up a team but I don't want to have to manage a bunch of employees. I love doing real estate, but I hate managing people. And, um, and all of a sudden, a lot of times, you know, people get stuck as they grow their business to just being a, a human resources director almost and dealing with the, the drama that comes with all that stuff. And so I thought, how do I like partner with a players? How do I, how do I get a players onto my team without the overhead of having to pay them a big salary? And that way I know that they can go and take care of the project. And secondly, it's not creating um, this, this big nut that I got to cover every single month in payroll. Right. Um, and so what I ended up doing is creating kind of like a joint venture type structure where, again, I have a pretty heavy social media following. I do a little bit of coaching and stuff. Uh, not a lot. I do four events a year, but there's a lot of people who want to scale into apartments who may be uh, the great operators, but they don't have the time. I'm sorry. They don't have the money. Um, or like the balance sheet to sponsor those loans or, or bring capital. And I can bring money to those deals and I can sponsor their loans and they can be boots on the ground. And then there's other people that come out who have money, but they don't want to do any of the work. And they're like, let me just passively invest. So the education stuff and, and social media, if you're not active on, I mean, I know you are, but uh, other people who are listening, they're not active. Like they should be active in telling people that you're out there doing deals because yeah. you get deal flow and money flow from that. Yeah. And so uh, because of the deal flow, I'm not only looking for deals, I'm looking for partners. I'm looking for joint venture partners, somebody that can find the deal, oversee all the project management, and then act as boots on the ground for as long as we own this thing. And uh, I can, instead of paying them money, I can actually just give them equity in the deal. And so for me, I don't need to have a hundred percent 
of the business. I, I would rather have 25% of a watermelon that's this big than 100% of a grape that's this big. You know, it's 25% of the juice and a watermelon is a lot more than 100% of the juice in a, in a grape. And so it allows me to get into areas that I've never been to. Like I bought 105 units in Louisiana, never even been there, right? My team has, they've gone through and did all the due diligence, but I have a local good buddy who lives in that town that's going to be our boots on the ground. He's got all the local resources and everything. I brought the money. I found the deal uh, or my team did. And uh, I sponsored the loan. We brought in third party management. My team's doing all the asset management and he's got a piece of the equity in the deal just for, you know, kind of being an accountability partner local to the project. And so I always have somebody who's an A player local to the project to meet with the building department, to meet with insurance inspectors, to meet with um, uh, insurance adjusters, to meet with uh, loan, um, you know, inspectors or, or anybody else that we need, who needs to be like, we need somebody with, who's competent, who knows how to work with people, who's a complete A player. And that's allowed me to do that. So uh, that's what I do. So like I, I own all these units and um, I actually have more equity than most traditional syndicators. Um, but I don't own hundred percent of all those. Some of them I do that are up in Cleveland. Some of my own 12% cause I just, you know, invested some cash in it or something. Um, and then there's, I probably average around 30 to 40% ownership across my portfolio though. So you're, you know, you're probably giving away a little bit more if you were, than if you were hiring an employee, but yet you're mm-hmm. mitigating, you're greatly mitigating your risk. You're also greatly incentivizing your employees because they're, they're your business partners. They're, the only way they get paid is the property performs. Yeah. Yeah. So they're highly incentivized to perform. And you have less risk exposure because they're not employees. You don't have to pay. They only get paid if the property performs. Yep. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a win-win. It gives you probably a little bit less, like you said, equity in the deal, but probably allows you to get a lot more deals done too and get them done. Exactly. I can do way more deals because I'm focusing on the things that we already have scaled. Like I can do asset management with a 15 minute phone call and looking at some reports each week. It's yeah. not even me, it's my COO doing it. So how many properties can he sit down and asset manage before we even need to hire somebody else to help yeah. out? So he can asset manage our entire portfolio in a half of a week by getting on phone calls and just looking at KPIs and metrics and looking at all the, all the uh, reports from the management companies, right? And so I, what do I do? I, I'm out doing marketing to get more deal flow and get more money flow. And yeah. then if I have deals, I send it off to my acquisitions guy and everybody talks to him. And then um, if we have money, I send it off to my, uh, I'm a chief investment officer who works with all of our investors now. And I send them off to him. Um, I'm really the, they're, they're the engines, you know, to my business acquisitions, the money, uh, chief investment officer, and my COO. I'm the fuel that feeds those engines. And I do like the highest and best use of my time is marketing. So it's being on social media, it's being on podcasts, it's, it's meeting new people, it's being at masterminds, it's, um, you know, going to events and, and just, you know, making sure that, that people know what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we get deal flow, we get money flow, and uh, we get local joint venture partners from all over the country that want to JV on deals with us. And so if I have 30% ownership in a deal, uh, but all I'm doing is I'm raising the money one time. I'm uh, sponsoring the loan on an ongoing basis, but it's not a lot of work, right? There's a lot of scale there uh, just to sponsor the loan. And my team's babysitting the deal from an asset management standpoint. It allows me to get into a lot of deals and do many more. So I'm willing to take a little bit less ownership in any given deal because I can do so much more and I can scale far greater than, uh, 
than if I had a bunch of other responsibilities. Yep. No, it makes a lot of sense. Well, cool. So we got to wrap up. We're running short of time, but I, I got a couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, what's your favorite book? Uh, 12 Pillars by Jim Rohn. Awesome. Easy read, man. It, you'll knock it out in two sittings and uh, uh, packed with, with just these principles, these profound principles on, uh, on building an awesome life. Cool. And then uh, last question, what's your, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? My three pillars of wealth creation would be earn money, save money, and invest money. I like it. Simple. Um, last question. How can our listeners get in touch with you, learn more about what you got going on, um, you know, talk to you about investing, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm real active on social media. One, I appreciate that, Todd. Um, I'm active on social media. Connect with me on Facebook. And uh, I create all my, my own content. I don't have marketing people that do it. I, I'm, I'm the one actually putting content out there. Um, I do have a team that kind of disseminates from Facebook and puts it on all the other different mediums and stuff. But it's, uh, it's me. I'm answering my, my messages. So if you've got questions, you want to talk, hit me up. Um, I, I, I do a little bit of coaching. I'm not some guru, but I do some coaching. It's called commercialempire.com. So you can look me up on there too and connect with me there. But, um, I, I put out a lot of free content and if you're looking for, um, insight on that stuff, I mean, this is a phenomenal podcast and just connecting and following the people that are, are making moves and doing some big things. And, um, yeah, there's ways that I can help people. I'd love to love to do so. So I appreciate it, man. Cool. Well, Tim, appreciate the time. Uh, tons of great value uh, you were able to add to the show. And I'm sure our listeners got a, a ton out of it. I know I did. I appreciate it, buddy. Well, thank you again, man, for all the value that you're creating out there. And uh, you keep on making an impact. Appreciate yeah, it. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. A couple things before we go. Again, go on to our Facebook page, Pillars of Wealth. We'd love to have you on there. Go on to iTunes, give us a rating and review, and subscribe to the show. Also, um, you know, don't forget, reach out to me if you want any help with uh, potentially growing your business. And reach out to John Styles to help you buy or sell real estate. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic the rest of the day. And as I say, make every day a Saturday.